The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, and welcome to Tech Trader on Barron's Live. I'm Barron's Associate Editor, Eric Savitz. I'm happy to welcome as our special guest today, Steve Case, who, of course, is the, was the co-founder of America Online, more recently has been the uh, founder and CEO of Revolution Partners. Is that the right name, Steve? Yeah. Uh, well, Revolution, a, we have a, a number of venture, seed venture and growth funds. We call it Revolution. Right who's been investing in, in both uh, early and later stage uh, startups for, uh, for a number of years now, and just today um, has, issued, has uh, published a new book uh, called The Rise of the Rest, which is uh, about a project that uh, he's been, Steve's been working on for, uh, I think, like eight years now that, since this uh, started. And the, the heart of the idea is that there are great ideas for startups everywhere and not just here in Palo Alto, where I happen to be sitting. Um, Steve, tell us a little bit about the origins of the project and uh, how this has evolved over the, the last uh, almost close to a decade now. Well, it's great to see you again, Eric, even if it is virtual. Yeah. Uh, and it, yeah, the story really goes back over a decade ago. I was asked by President Obama to chair an initiative called Startup America Partnership, focused on regional entrepreneurship. And that got me traveling around the country and frankly, also opened my eyes to some things that I hadn't really been paying attention to. One was that most of the job creation in the company and the country was coming from new companies. Small business is important, big business is important, but new business was most important. Uh, and then you look at venture capital statistics, and as you know, it's overwhelmingly going to a few places. 75% of venture capital for the last decades have gone to three states, California, New York, and Massachusetts. So it's like, okay, well, if the job creation comes from new companies, startups, and, and a lot of them um, do want and need venture capital to really scale into being significant companies, but it's much harder for the entrepreneurs in places outside of, of Silicon Valley and, and uh, New York City, Boston, places like that. How do we address that? How do we level the playing field? And also, how do we unearth great investment opportunities backing you know, companies in these places where uh, where there isn't you know, much venture capital? So then we started doing bus tours with Rise the Rest starting about eight years ago. And we launched the Rise of Seed Fund about five years ago. And then just this week came out with a book kind of telling the stories of, of the road from the last uh, decade, which I think are inspiring stories around new companies, new ideas, disrupting big industries, but doing it in places that most people are just not paying attention to. So w when you think about the ingredients for a successful uh, um, entrepreneurial uh, climate, there's a few things, right? You need to have uh, you need to have ambitious entrepreneurial people who want to start new businesses. Uh, you need sources of capital, as you suggest. And you also need a certain amount of infrastructure, right? You need um, lawyers who know how to work with startups and you need accountants who are familiar with a certain kind of financial framework that might be different than uh, more established businesses. And it does also feel like there's something cultural, right? Uh, there, it is, it, it's almost... You know, in, in the valley where I am, um, it's also true, as you mentioned, a few other places. You see this in, in New York, but also in uh, a few other places, Austin, Seattle, a couple of places around the country that have built up substantial startup communities. There's an infrastructure that exists. 
When you go to some of the places in the heartland, which you describe in the book, you talk about going to places like Detroit and Indianapolis and Chattanooga and places that you don't necessarily think of as hotbeds of startups. Was the biggest challenge in inspiring people or, or kind of encouraging uh, people to start venture funds in those places? Or is it more about trying to inspire people to think of themselves um, as as capable of doing startups, of capable of starting new businesses? Yeah, a little bit of all of the above, but yeah, in terms of obviously what you describe in terms of what we think of as network density in places like uh, Silicon Valley is important. But it is worth remembering that uh, 100 years ago, Silicon Valley was fruit orchards. They wasn't growing <laughs> startups, they were growing fruit. 100 yes. years ago, the most innovative city in the country was Detroit because of the car. The automobile right. was the hot technology of, of the day. You also mentioned you know, Seattle. 40 years ago, Seattle was actually struggling. The economy was kind of going backwards uh, and started shifting and became a startup hub in part because of Microsoft. Uh, and Microsoft actually started in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and then they moved to Seattle for one sure. reason. Both Paul Allen and Bill Gates were from Seattle. And they kind of wanted to go home. The reason Amazon started in Seattle was because Jeff Bezos was in New York City at the time and said, I need to create this uh, new company to sell books online. I bet if I move to Seattle, I can pick off some engineers from Microsoft. And so he did move to Seattle and Amazon ended up starting and, and scaling there. So now uh, the Seattle area is, is sort of robust. So th this is the story of all these different, different cities. And what we've seen over the last decade and what I've tried to describe in this book is this phenomenon of building these, these ecosystems to support startups. I've really been developing in the last decade. I think the last couple of years, because of the, the pandemic, it's sort of a a tipping point that some people who felt like they had to be in Silicon Valley to participate in sort of the innovation economy, the startup sector, decided they wanted to move someplace else and and, and either work remotely or, or do something differently in those uh, in those different uh, you know communities. And we've also seen some more dispersion of, of venture capital because people realize the venture capitalists in Silicon Valley mm -hmm. who are doing pitch meetings suddenly on Zoom. Guess what? If you're doing a pitch meeting on Zoom, you could be talking to an entrepreneur in Ohio as well as an entrepreneur around the corner in, in, in Palo Alto. So I think there's some fundamental dynamics that have been building over the last decade and accelerating over the last uh, you know, couple of years. You know, one thing I, th I think we've seen, which is a little bit of a chicken and egg problem, is that in some places, so like what you're describing in Seattle, for example, with Microsoft, where there's a whole sort of infrastructure of businesses that have been created by people who were at Microsoft and left. And even in the Valley, right? So some of the early history of the Valley involves uh, the founders, uh, the early the early founders of Fairchild Semiconductor, who later went on to start Intel and AMD and like a whole bunch of other semiconductor companies and really seeded the Valley that way. And we've seen this in other places too, I think in, uh, part of Austin, maybe because Dell is based yep. there and you've had a, you know, a lot of experienced engineers and people who've worked in that business uh, there. And we've seen this kind of thing over and over again, the PayPal mafia people talk about all the time. Um, there's a lot of that where you get uh, you get sort of a, a like a, a, a tentpole business that uh, uh, which then spurs the creation of additional uh, startups. But how do you get the first one, right? So the, if you're if you're in a place that doesn't have that, or like that has a more of an industrial history, or more of a, um, uh, you know, maybe more of an agricultural uh, uh, story to its uh, business climate, 
it seems like that's the hard part is how do you get one or two of those kinds of tentpole companies? Um, and we've seen it in Seattle because obviously it's not it's now not just Microsoft. It is Amazon and um, and a few others as well. So how do you think about that? No, I think they're exactly what described. There's a whole chapter in the book talking about this idea of tentpole companies. It absolutely is an accelerator for exactly the reasons you mentioned. It signals to that community that we can we can we can play in the big leagues, that we can build significant you know, companies. A lot of people in the community didn't necessarily think that was possible. And the success of that company leads to some of the people that were there early decided they want to do something else when it gets bigger and you either start some other company or back invest in, in other companies. I saw that firsthand when we started America Online almost 40 years ago in the Washington, D.C. area. It was not a startup you know, kind of hub. It was actually no venture capital in the area. Uh, now, several decades later, Amazon picks that area for its second headquarters because of what's happened, in part because you know, AOL people went on to start companies and back companies. You mentioned you know, the success of Austin and the, the, the Dell was clearly a key part of that. The things like the South by Festival were, were a key part of that. More recently, one of the cities that's really shown momentum in the last five years that I talk about in the book is Indianapolis for exactly the reason you mentioned. A tentpole company there was Exact Target, acquired by Salesforce about five, six years ago for two and a half billion dollars. They had a mm-hmm. thousand employees. Now they have two thousand employees. Actually, the second largest Salesforce office outside of San Francisco is Indianapolis. And the founder, Scott Dorsey, started an accelerator, a venture fund. Now there's dozens of enterprise software companies growing in in, uh, in Indianapolis. So there's this. The, the question is, how do you, as you said, how do you get it going? And the best way is to focus more on the startups as a community. You focus on the on the startups. Give them the initial funding. Give help them with the initial customers, mentoring, uh, things like that, and have more shots on goal. Some of those startups will fail, but some will go on to be the exact targets or the Microsoft or the Dell or the AOL. And that's what we've been seeing develop over the last uh, you know decade. Right. So I, I would say, you know, one thing about this that always strikes me is uh, you do see periods where people talk about uh, they create a uh, Silicon fill in the blank, right? Silicon Beach, uh, there's Silicon Slopes in Salt Lake City. There's a whole bunch of these kinds of uh, efforts to create alternatives to Silicon Valley. But then you look at the numbers, as you say, and where the dollars are going. And um, historically, a lot of the money is still going up to um, mention also New York and Massachusetts, but it's really still Northern California. And one thing, one thing I did as a as an exercise uh, yesterday, as I was thinking about this topic, was to look at um, where are the largest U.S. Um, um, uh, unicorns based. You know, these are you know companies worth more than a billion dollars. So I looked at the list to make life easier. Under ten bill, uh, above ten billion dollars. And if you look at the U.S. unicorns with that kind of valuation, the vast, vast majority of them are in San Francisco. They're not even just in Northern California. I think of I, I counted like twenty-five or thirty. Like 21 of them are in San Francisco. No other city had more than like two. And I, I wonder how you think, is that just a remnant of like, because some of these have been around for a long time, right? Some of them are 15 years old and to even call them startups is a, a, a little generous in some ways. But it, it gets at this question of whether whether this is playing out the way you hope. Like over the course of uh, the eight years or 10 years you've been doing this, are you seeing progress in the numbers, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of, in, there, there's a ton of individual examples, but if you actually look at the trends, are they changing at all? Yeah, I think there are. I'll give you a few statistics. First of all, uh, CNBC comes out with their 
Disruptor 50 every year. Right. This year, over two thirds of the Disruptor 50 were outside of Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. That's one data point. Another data point, we did a, a joint report with uh, Rise of the Rest and PitchBook late last year. And they said over the last decade, the increase in venture capital to these Rise of the Rest cities, it's up 600%. And the other data point is in the last decade, 1,400 new regional venture firms have, have started up. So I think the foundation is, is being built. But as you said, these things don't happen overnight. It takes a while to build a Silicon Valley or a Seattle or an Austin. Uh, but it starts with the intentionality of really recognizing it's important to back these new companies, getting more capital off the sidelines locally and attracting more attention nationally, slowing the brain drain of people leaving your community to go to the coast because they feel mm -hmm. like there's not much happening there and they have to go someplace else that they really want to be part of the, the, uh, the startup sector. There's a lot of things that have to happen and I'm reminded of those early days I had with uh, with AOL and the Internet. When we got started in 1985, only 3% of people were online. They were online an average of one right. hour a week. And it took us really a decade of slogging through and, and, you know, one step forward, two steps back, three steps forward, two steps back. It was it was a long you know, journey over a decade because most people didn't really believe in the idea of the internet. Suddenly in the mid nineties, it took off and accelerated. And obviously AOL was a, a beneficiary of that. So I, I see, have lived these experiences where you work on uh, kind of building the foundation for a decade or more, and then you hear it, see a tipping point. I think we're at that tipping point with Rise of Rest, which is why I wrote this book, because I think it's not just one or two companies in one or two cities, it's dozens of companies in dozens of cities that really are going to be some of the great you know, iconic unicorn companies of tomorrow. So I wonder if you can give us a little bit of insight into uh, into the, the Rise of the Rest Fund. I guess there's been two so far that you've right. created. So give us a little bit of a sense of how much capital you've raised. I, I looked on, on your website, you list at least 200 companies that uh, you funded. So this is a money where your math is a uh, situation you, you have invested in a lot of these companies. Give us a little sense of how it's gone, like whether this has been a good financial investment. Well, at Revolution, we have three groups, Revolution Growth, Later Stage, Revolution Ventures, and then more recently, what you're talking about, the Rise of the Rest you know, Seed Fund. Uh, and for both Revolution Growth and Revolution Ventures, it's a kind of classic institutional investors, institutional LPs or investors in that fund. When we launched the Rise of the Rest Fund, which is four or five years ago, we decided to do something a little different, which is to go... Uh, to individual but prominent entrepreneurs, investors, executives, and have them join us as investors in this. And it, it, about 35 people did, Jeff Bezos, Howard Schultz, Meg Whitman, Tori Birch, Sarah Blakely, you know, investors like, uh, venture investors like John Doerr and Jim Breyer and private mm -hmm. equity people like Henry Kravis, David Rubenstein, hedge fund people like Ray Dalio, a really, really amazing group of people all joined us on this effort. Uh, and over this, you know, over that period of time, as you said, we've now made 200 investments in 100 different cities. And the way we were able to do that is we built this network over the last decade. We've co-invested now with over 300 regional venture firms. They're the you know, sourcing opportunities for us. And we let them take the lead in terms of setting the terms, taking a board seat and so forth. And then we network all these companies and all these investors together as part of the Rise of the Rest Network. And we set out to launch this fund. We said the best thing we can do to get more capital to more entrepreneurs in more places 
is to generate top tier returns because that would really mm -hmm. signal that you can make significant money right. with a strategy. And we're on track to do that. We obviously don't release our, our, our numbers other than to our investors, but we said we were going to generate top tier returns and, and we were, we were seeing, seeing returns that actually exceed what most of their investors actually expected. And that's because we're starting to see some of these early seed companies advanced at going public or, or being uh, you know, valued privately at, at billion dollar plus valuation. So still early because it's a seed fund, but we're actually quite encouraged by the, the momentum uh, we're seeing. We do believe we'll achieve our objective of top tier returns. We do believe that will result in a lot of other investors on the coast paying more attention to what's happening in other parts of the country. Right. So we've had um, there have been a few things that have happened during the course of the pandemic that have really change the dynamic for investors in, in, in various ways. So uh, in no particular order, um, we, we've had uh, this massive adoption of work from home or hybrid work, uh, which does which changes the landscape in many ways. We've had, uh, we've had a complete uh, a breakdown of valuation, in, in, particularly in technology. It's been more visible in the public market, but you know that, of course, you know as well as anyone, that this is also going on in the private market. We've had a, a, a complete like kind of shutdown of the IPO market, uh, which is just, uh, we really haven't had any tech IPOs in, in multiple months now. And I, I wonder how that affects both your approach to the market and whether this is better or worse for people who are trying to start, uh, uh, you know, have nascent uh, startup ecosystems in places where maybe this is their first fund, not their second or third or fourth fund, uh, where it's their first startup and they're facing uh, this kind of situation for the first time, where they it's harder to get capital and it, it may not be they've got they face they're facing the potential for a significant economic downturn. How does that all figure into the way that you approach both the venture market more generally, but also this specific um, slice of the of, of the startup world? Well, I can't say personally, I was surprised that the market kind of reset because a year ago, I did think valuations were uh, kind of robust might be the right word. And so we actually on our later stage growth fund slowed down the pace of, of new investments and accelerated monetizing some of our existing stakes. We just thought the, the after a 13 year you know, bull market, things were at an unsustainable level. So the correction we've seen over the last year is frankly not a, a surprise to me, maybe because I've been doing this for, for a while and went through a bunch of cycles. Uh, in terms of the, the rise rest, specifically this, this seed strategy, there's not a lot of impact because there you're really investing in companies that are going to develop really over five, usually more like 10 years. The entry valuations obviously are, are quite a bit you know, lower. And who knows five or 10 years from now when they either get sold or go, get acquired, what the environment's going to look like. But when you're really backing these companies at an early stage, you have to take a, a long view. And it frankly helps that in these rise of the rest city, again, the dozens of, of, of cities that I profile in, in the book, because it is harder for them to raise capital, they tend to be quite a bit more capital efficient. They, and they assume that whatever money they raise has to last them for a while. And as you know, in Silicon Valley, the perception, you know, it's changing obviously more recently, but you know, people felt like they could always raise more money and it always be at a higher valuation. That's not the mindset of most of the entrepreneurs in most parts of the, the country. And that, that capital efficiency, that bootstrap mentality, I think also uh, you know, bodes well. And the last point is in it, when the economy resets like this and, and, and particularly large public companies uh, you know, have to reassess things and often the way they 
first move they do is cut some costs. When they cut some costs, often that is some of their innovation projects uh, so they can disrupt yeah. themselves. And they say, well, we have to really focus on, on the basics. We need to make sure we get our earnings right for the next you know, few quarters. And so often there's a trimming of some of that internal investment in R&D and, and, and new, new products, new technologies. This so actually creates an opportunity for the entrepreneurs to you know, kind of be in that attack mode as the bigger companies shift into a defense mode. So I think some of that's going on, too. And you've seen, already seen some big companies announce some layoffs and cutting some, some of their innovation you know, projects. The innovation they were trying to see happen are still going to happen it's just more likely it's going to now be from uh, an entrepreneurial company a startup that then succeeds and sometimes those big companies will end up buying those you know, those companies more often those the really most successful new companies end up being independent you know companies that really do kind of threaten the viability of the incumbents that's the nature of entrepreneurship that's one of the things that makes it makes it interesting do you um do you find that the uh the areas of opportunity for the companies that you're looking at look a little different than say what you might see in a set of companies that are being started in you know san francisco or cupertino or sunnyvale like are they doing different things yeah i think for for two reasons first is you know entrepreneurs at the core see a problem and say i'm going to create a company to solve it and people are only going to bump into the problems that are part of their life experience and the experience that people have in different parts of the country or different parts of the world will lead them to different kinds of uh, example. You know, one example is in Indianapolis, uh, Megan Glover uh, started a company because she was worried about the water quality for her kids. This is Flint, Michigan, not too far, a very public right. uh, water crisis a few years ago. So having seen that and lived close to, you know, to Flint, she said, I want to get my water tested called the utility company and said, well, we really don't do that. But if you want to do it, you know, it costs thousands of dollars. Well, that's crazy. So she started a company to do this. And initially it was to offer this for consumers. Then she created a, a more of a enterprise solution. Some cities, including San Francisco, now have licensed her, you know, her technology. That was somebody seeing a particular problem in their community right. and trying to solve it. The other big factor is that in this next wave of the internet, what I've called the third wave of the internet, when sort of the internet meets the real world and some right. of the biggest industries like healthcare are disrupted, it's not just about the technology. You really need to figure out ways to marry that with partnerships. And some of the core partnerships in a field such as healthcare are in different parts of the country. Some of the most important hospitals are Mayo and Minnesota, Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, Johns Hopkins in Maryland. And so being close to them and, and having a building trust with them often is the way to get those partnerships that could be a transformative. So they're a little bit different. I think most people in Silicon Valley have recognized we are shifting from the software centric, uh, you know, second way where it's more about apps and, and virality and so forth and are trying to figure out ways to disrupt some of these big, big, uh, big industries. I just think it advantages some of these rise of the rest cities and rise of the rest entrepreneurs because they're closer to sort of the understanding of what's necessary to succeed and also more likely to forge partnerships in that particular area. I'll give you one last example uh, is there's a company that actually was you know, first conceived by a founder, Carter Malloy, in San Francisco. But it was basically a company called Acre Trader that is a platform to invest in farmland. Mm -hmm. He said, well, if I'm going to be a platform to invest in farmland, I have to build trust with farmers and moved the company to Arkansas, to Fayetteville, Arkansas. They've gone on that's to raise really, like $80 million really dollars in, in scaling nicely. 
because they said we, we will we will be more successful with that company being in Arkansas than being in, in San Francisco. Uh, so we're seeing more and more of those examples as we travel around. Obviously, I've tried to summarize a lot of those and tell some of those stories in the book. You know, one thing I was curious about when you when you think about um, uh, diversifying the startup community, some people might take it from a different angle and think about gender diversification, racial diversification. Um, you know that it's it's been a it's 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 uh, it, they're related problems in some ways um, in terms of who is getting funded, who thinks about who has the who sees themselves as having the skill set to um, or having the confidence to um, having the access to capital to build businesses. And I wonder if those cross currents affect the way that you approach the startups you decide to fund. How do you think about those elements as well? Well, you're right. Our, the need to level the playing field in terms of innovation, entrepreneurship, venture capital, things like that is partly around place, but also around people. And the statistic there, for those who haven't, haven't followed this, is even though women are 50% of the population, female founders get less than 10% of venture capital. Even right. though black Americans are 13% of the population, black founders get less than 1% of venture capital. So it is a problem, not just in terms of place, in terms of people. The good news in terms of what we've been seeing in these Rise of the Rest cities is they tend to be more diverse. Right now, our Rise of the Rest portfolio, over 40% of the investments we've made are female founders or founders of color, which is still not what it should be, but a lot better than you see in, in, in places right. like uh, uh, like Silicon Valley. So I think we're making some progress on on that front. And we, about a year and a half ago, launched a, a national tour. We couldn't hit the road with our Rise of Rest bus. So we did a kind of a virtual tour, specifically for that one, focused on, on black founders. And over a hundred uh, you know, kind of applied. We had a, you know, a pitch competition with some judges. Uh, the winner, you know, a, a company called Reapley, uh, you know, got a million dollars investment, but we ended up investing in six or seven other companies like that. And uh, I should say, I just read this morning a story in Inc. Magazine. I know it's a competitor, but Inc. Magazine okay. profiling uh, Gary Cooper, uh, the, the founder of, of, of Reboot. That's an example of a company in a place that doesn't get a lot of venture capital, happens to be in Chicago, uh, focusing on the sustainable uh, economy, sort of the circular economy, the reuse of products and, and, uh, and services. And he also happens to be a black founder building a, a fabulous company. You know, what, what, one of the sort of flip side elements of this is, is what this might say about the environment in Silicon Valley. And, and, you know, so there have been a couple of high profile examples, I'd argue a little overblown, but nonetheless, high profile examples of companies moving their headquarters out of the valley. We saw this with Oracle and um, Hewlett Packard, Hewlett Packard Enterprise, Tesla, Palantir moved to Colorado. There've been a handful of those. I don't think it's had a huge impact um, uh, beyond sort of the headline level, but it is an interesting development. And in fact, in the in, in the book, you make the forecast that over the next decade, that a majority of startups will be from outside uh, the valley um, in the rest of the world. That would be a dramatic change. And I guess the the question part of the question is. Does that is there a is there a problem in the valley or is this more about the opportunity that is emerging elsewhere? Like, is there a is there a darker side of this for uh, for, you know, San Francisco and Palo Alto and the rest of Northern California? I wouldn't call it a dark side. Again, I, I, I celebrate Silicon Valley. It's amazing. It will continue to be amazing. It will continue to be the leader of the pack in terms of startup 
pub, not just in this country, but around the world. So there's clearly a lot to celebrate around Silicon Valley. And when we talk about the rise of the rest, we're not saying it means the fall of Silicon Valley. It just means right. other cities rising and, and creating a more diversified, inclusive uh, innovation economy. But that said, there are some challenges. You live there, so you, you know them. I hear this from, from uh, CEOs there a lot. It is harder to, even though it's easier to raise capital, it's harder to build the culture because people jump around a lot. The average tenure mm -hmm. at most of these companies, like 18 months. Uh, and that it's particularly in the early stage, that makes things somewhat more, uh, you know, more difficult. Some people also complain about some of the, you know, the challenges of doing business there with, with regulation and so forth. Others are worried about some of the issues around uh, crime and, and, and things like that. A lot of people are worried about long commutes and expensive housing and so forth. So there are some issues that they're, they're dealing with. It does lead some people to decide to either themselves move or potentially move their company to other places. But I don't think that's the main event. The main event is not what existing companies do. It's what new companies do and where they start and where they scale. And the good news in the last decade is how many mayors and governors have shifted their thinking from thinking of economic development as, as, as attracting existing companies to move their headquarters or open a factory or something to now doubling down on new companies, hoping they launch some of the big companies of tomorrow in their own communities. So, you know, one of the elements uh, that I'm uh, of this, the kind of getting the mixture right is government support. And that's, in fact, as you mentioned in the beginning of the, our discussion, where the origin of your involvement here was, was uh, looking at ways for uh, for the U.S. government to be supportive here. I mean, there are local things and state initiatives, but I'm curious about how you feel about where we are in terms of getting federal government support for startups of various kinds. And if there are particular things that you would uh, you would be encouraging uh, the administration, Congress to do that haven't happened yet. Well, I think uh, some things have happened the last few months that I'm encouraged by the, the, the legislation, both the Chips and Science Act and more recently the Inflation Reduction Act. There's a number of things it does, but one is focusing more on regional hubs and, you know, $10 billion funding, you know, the creation of, of more startup hubs, exactly what we're talking about with uh, with Rise of Rest. I think that's helpful. Some of the focus, particularly in that latter legislation, was known as the IRA uh, around uh, climate, it likely will accelerate the, the funding there, a lot of focus on infrastructure. President Biden just a few weeks ago was in Columbus, Ohio, uh, breaking ground on a new Intel plant, which is interesting because the Intel CEO there said having spent most of the last half century being part of building Silicon Valley, now we are building the Silicon Heartland in, in Ohio and building the, the systems around that. So those are some some positives. Still work to do, but some positives. The area that I'd particularly you know, urge Congress to focus on, I've been doing this you know, with for a decade, I actually testified to the Senate on this eight or nine years ago, uh, is immigration reform. You know, one of the great things about the American innovation economy is the fact that immigrants from all around the world for you know, centuries have, have wanted to come here and start, start here and build here and, and create jobs here. But we have made it more difficult for people to come. We have made it more difficult for people who are here for getting PhDs and other things to, to stay. And so my hope is that we will be able to pass some uh, legislation to kind of what, win what's now a global battle for, for talent. So good progress on some things around particularly regional hubs, still some work to be done on other things like immigration. I, I, I wonder how you feel about, you know, there's, a, there's kind of sentiment in Congress, kind of on both sides of the aisle, uh, that is... Uh, well, well, I don't know if hostile is fair, but like cer certainly wary of large technology businesses 
Um, there's interest in regulating them in various ways. Now, sometimes they can't agree on exactly what they want, or and sometimes they're actually on the opposite sides of some of these arguments. But there is sentiment that there's just simply not enough. Um, uh, there's not enough regulation uh, for for big tech, and I I worry a little about uh, whether there's uh, that will inadvertently cause uh, make it less attractive. Uh, to work in in technology, I wonder how you how you think about that. Well, I'd say uh, I share the concern that you have to get this right, but I'm not surprised that uh, Congress and also other countries, Brussels and, and, and the EU, are are taking a, a look at this. I actually my focus now is on uh, this new book, Rise of the Rest. I actually wrote a book six years ago called The Third Way that talked about what I expected to be a backlash against big tech and even a backlash against you know, Silicon Valley as these companies got larger and more powerful and, and more valuable and had a broader impact in society. I thought there would be a, a backlash. So what's happening now is, is sort of, uh, again, not a not a you know, big surprise. So I think you have to get this this right. There are different buckets that sometimes get con confused. There's some focus on competition, some of the antitrust policy. How do you make sure that new companies can challenge some of these you know, big incumbents? Uh, but there's also concerns about privacy, particularly around uh, some some of the new technologies around healthcare and uh, AI and many many other things. So there are many different aspects in play here. But it's not surprising that after several decades of the internet going from an idea to now a reality that is ubiquitous and playing such a central role, and as Silicon Valley has become such a you know, powerhouse and some of these companies are, are, are so significant, and so valuable that that people on the policy side, whether being Congress or, or regulators, are are taking a, a fresh look and trying to figure out how to strike the right balance as they think about the, the these policies. So um, we're, we're running out of time. I do want to ask one last thing, which is um, I'm curious whether there are good examples of uh, outside the U.S. of countries that are doing a good job at fostering this kind of development in more than one, you know, more than a single like central hub. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, is, is, have you seen have you taken ideas or found good examples of uh, found inspiration from other places that are trying to likewise foster innovation? Well, I'd say the, the experience I've had, at least in the last decade, talking to the uh, government leaders in, in various uh, you know, countries, is they were trying to replicate this American innovation engine by creating hubs of innovation. And initially they do focus on a, on a few places in their, in, in their country. Now that they've got some traction on that, they're starting to figure out ways to, to distribute it. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. How do we, we've got some hubs that have developed that are that have been very successful and, and very powerful. But we do have a lot of people in the, in the country that feel kind of left out and left behind. We have do kind of have communities that instead of having job growth are seeing job loss. And how right. do we figure out a way to address that by by backing those entrepreneurs and, and, and some of them and then will be successful and kind of create the, the companies of the future, the industry of the future and do it in places all around the country, not just a few places on, on the coast and also do it in a more in, inclusive way. So I think we're, America's led the way around entrepreneurship, led the way even with the concept of, of venture capital last 10 or 20 years, other countries have tried to get, get on the playing field. Uh, and I think what they'll, the next step for them is to follow in our footsteps of, not just establishing the country as a hub uh, and then establishing a few places within the country as sort of the super hubs, but then figure out a way to distribute it more broadly. Exactly. Steve, thank you so much for this. Um, it's been a fast, it's been fascinating to talk to you.
here's the book. It's called Rise of the Rest. It came out today. Yes, um, thank you, Eric. Thanks for helping us shine a spotlight on what's happening. I think people really will be riveted by some of these stories. It really, that's why I wrote the book. After spending a decade traveling around the country, seeing firsthand what's happening in these different cities, seeing firsthand what these entrepreneurs are building, it does give me hope for America. It's sort of, there's not a lot of reason to be hopeful these days. There's a lot of things that divide us. This is one of the few things I think can really unite us. So, so thanks for allowing us to... Talk about talk. I'll hold up my copy too, the book. Where <laughs> and are you uh, are you ready to get back on the bus? I'd love to get back on the bus. We're, I'm traveling quite a bit this this fall in support of the of, of the book, uh, and we are talking about kind of getting the you know the bus back on the road uh, as we think about the things next year. Great. Well, uh, wish you the best in the book, and and thank you for uh, thank you for being with us. All right. Thanks, Eric. And thanks to everyone for joining us today um, for this conversation with Steve Case. Please join us again tomorrow. Uh, Market Watch reporter Chris Matthews will be speaking with Brad DeLong, uh, who's an economist, about his new book, which is called Slouching Towards Utopia. It's a history of the uh, economic uh, miracle of the 20th century and what we can do to generate another 100 years of growing prosperity, uh, a topic that is uh, consistent with our chat today. Thanks to all of you for being with us. Be well and stay safe. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.